0: For those who would like, um, for the invitation song, it be number 307. You can mark that in your songbooks if you're using the songbook for the invitation. I want to welcome you to our service this morning. The my way? Thank you. Welcome you to our service this morning. We are talking about the subject matter of anger, and we are looking at the question of whether or not this concept of righteous anger, can you... Actually practice something called righteous anger without being guilty of sinning And that is a very difficult question for many because it is confusing many when when looking at the whole subject of of anger Look at various scriptures and you might come across a scripture that says anger is a work of the flesh We could read Galatians chapter 5 and it's listed as one of the works of the flesh And then you come to another passage, and it says, be slow to anger. As if it's like, okay, well, it's okay to get angry. Just got to do it slowly. I can build up. (laughs) Some might look at it that way. And in others, like the passage we just read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, to say, be angry, but sin not. And so the question is, well, can I get angry or not? And is there a difference are we looking at it from a standpoint that, okay, God can get angry, but because we are not God, we can't get angry? And then we go on to other type of questions like that, and we're going to look at some, some scenarios toward the end um, and deal with some modern application that still causes confusion. And, and this by no means will make it so crystal clear, but hopefully help you to better delineate between this concept of, of sinful anger, if I can make that contrast, with righteous anger... And what does that look like, practically speaking? So that's what we're looking at. But this confusion, I want you to look at this confusion from a standpoint of the reading in Psalm. The psalmist, likely David, said, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Now imagine if we were to say those words today about some person or people. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. You read a passage like that, and that sounds like he's angry. And this is a psalm written. This is inspired scripture. And so that might be confusing because... Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us? And here, David is saying, I hate them with perfect hatred. So is this righteous anger or sinful anger? That's what we're going to look at. You come to the other side, and in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And I've withheld a couple of the words that aren't in the original language, but I'll I'll add from context standpoint, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus says, hey, if you are angry without cause against your brother... You're in danger of being judged. And yet, right across the page is one of God's children who says, I hate with perfect hatred against the enemies of God. And so, is this okay? I believe what we have to do is to be able to understand this concept of righteous anger because sometimes I believe, and I'll, I'll get to this point toward the end of the sermon. Sometimes we we have this concept of righteous anger, and and I believe it is based upon my view of what is right and wrong, not necessarily God's view. And then even we can go one step further. My view is God's view in my mind. And it is for that reason why, and you might find this to be uh, the reason why when you talk to um, Muslims, That they believe it's okay to have such hatred against infidels because God hates infidels. And so the mindset is that we can hate them with perfect hatred like the way David says in Psalm 139. And we might say, well, we know that that's not righteous anger. That's sinful anger. But there is a principle that we need to see in what is being said. And so hopefully that's what we get when we get into this concept of righteous anger. So what is it? Well, when you look at scriptures, we know for a fact, because we just even read some this morning in our study in in Exodus chapter 17 and 18, that God gets angry. We know that it's a fact that God gets angry because, in fact, if you just read the scriptures hundreds of times, he displays his anger one way or another. We've already studied in our, our class in Exodus. He got angry with Moses when Moses said, let me speak again. He got angry with Pharaoh. He got angry with the Egyptians. He's gotten angry with the Israelites. And often, most often in the Old Testament scriptures, he is angry with his own people. So the fact is, God got, does get angry. All right? So it is something that he displays, and how he displays it is in a number of ways, and we'll look at a couple of examples that way. But the second thing is that while he is angry, he is without sin. So apparently, our holy God gets angry and is not guilty of sin. So the question is, how does that happen? And when we look at the scriptures, what we see about God is that his anger stems from a holy righteousness. And when I use the word holy righteousness, it's not like self-righteousness. It is based upon who he is. He is a God of truth. He is a God of love. He is a God of justice. And so when, we're, when I'm using the word holy righteousness, it is not your, your standard fleshly style of, well, it's my way and, and I'm going to have this um, vigilante mindset, taking care of everything, of my sense of right and wrong, which may not be based upon truth itself. His is based upon truth. And so his anger then burns against all that is contrary to divine truth. This morning, as um, Ben was reading out of Numbers chapter 22, if you go to verse 32, here is the angel of the Lord, and he burns against, and I don't know what translation Ben was using, but against all that is contrary to himself. In other words, God was upset and angered over Balaam because what he was doing was contrary to to all that he had said and all who he is. And so anything contrary to God gets him upset. When we sin, gets him upset. Now, he might be long-suffering, and we can get into other aspects of our God, his graciousness and so on and so forth and forgiveness, but he still is upset with sin, and he gets upset with the sinner. He not only just hates sin, and we sometimes hear it in the pulpit, We sometimes hear it in Bible classes or conversations. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. But yet you can read Old Testament passage that says he hates the sinner. So again, there's this confusion. So what does this look like, this righteous anger? And and it should not waver your faith by any stretch. When we're talking about a righteous God who hates a sinner, we understand what this hatred is based upon. It's not like... He hates a sinner from the standpoint that he doesn't want the sinner to be saved because he loves all and wants all to come unto repentance. It's because of the wickedness of the sin that is portrayed that he does not have fellowship with the sinner. And his anger will burn in such a manner as to propose judgment that may come forth. But he is long-suffering, and he wants all to be saved, and that's why he so loved this world he gave us his own begotten son. So when we understand this righteous anger, it's not like, I I hate your guts, I want nothing to do with you. It's, I hate that you are doing wrong, and I want you to do what's right. But my anger burns against you for all that is contrary to truth and righteousness and love. So that's what we're talking about when we're looking at this concept of righteous anger. And when we look at the scriptures... The scriptures show us a number of illustrations. We could look at a lot of them, by the way, where God's righteous wrath is being displayed. So in Job, and we don't have to go to Job, but we'll get to some of the other um, passages I'll look at. But in Job, even when Job is, is dialoguing with his friends about Jehovah, he mentions that God is against those who practice iniquity. That is why God is for the people who love him and follow after him and walk in his ways because they portray him. They reflect his qualities and his character. And there is fellowship with them and there is peace with them and not animosity and angst and division. Because he has fellowship with those who love him and walk in his ways. Well, those who walk in iniquity are contrary to his ways and thus his anger burns against them we go to Exodus chapter 22. We're going to be there in our Bible class, I don't know, maybe next week. um, Maybe as as early as next Sunday. But if you look at Exodus chapter 22, and this is going to be reflective all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. I want you to look at this passage because this is based upon the whole of the gospel message about what is pure and undefiled religion in James 1 verse 27. So I, I want you to look at the text here. Exodus chapter 22. After the The Ten Commandments have been given. There's various other laws that have been um, expounded upon. And in verses 22 through 24 of Exodus 22, here is what Moses says with regard to God. Picking up in verse um, 21, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow, Or fatherless child if you do afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless Wow I thought well, God was such a loving God no he cannot because he is a holy God and who loves He loves the underdog, so to speak. He loves the one who is on the fringe and and no one's caring for them. Look at the the fatherless. Look at the widows that have no protection and that's who he, he loves and cares for and he wants you to do the same. And he says, remember when you were, in a sense, fatherless, when you were destitute, you were persecuted? You should know how it feels. So don't be that way against others. And if you do, I will be angry with you, and here's how I'll display my anger. So we see that in Exodus chapter 22. In Exodus 32, we won't go there now, but in Exodus 32, when when Moses is up on the mountain bringing what what is later known as the Ten Commandments, right? He's actually, he's getting all the commandments in um, those 40 days that he's up on the mountain with God. In the meantime, the Israelites are playing the harlot, so to speak. They are taking all their jewelry and making this golden idol, this golden calf. The very first commandment of God is, there shall be no images before me. You will not worship any idol. And that's exactly what they're doing. And they get so upset with them. Later on, we actually read of of Moses, and I'll get to that passage in a little bit, of Moses' anger. That is displayed. But basically, what we see is against his people, he burns his own anger against the own his own people that he loves and cares for, who who he put under his wings, so to speak, as he brought them over, um, over the victory of, of their enemies, because he loved them. But he burns hot against his own people because of their iniquities by forsaking him. And that's why they went into what was known as captivity. And so we see a number of passages, many, many passages, where God gets angry with a number of different people, from Jews and Gentiles. So the fact that God gets angry and does not sin begs the question, can we be angry and not be guilty of sin, just as Paul says, be angry and sin not, when we see a God who is without sin? And when we see, how is it possible that you cannot sin but God killed people? God disciplined people, even if not killing them, sending them into captivity, bringing plagues upon them. What kind of God does that would be the mindset of many atheists. It'd be the mindset of many people who are agnostic and wondering whether or not I'm going to follow this God. Because this sounds like a mean God. And if you don't read the rest of the scriptures and see God's divine love for us, that may be the conclusion you come to. But when we see a holy God who is based upon love and righteousness and we see all the injustices of the world, now we can understand why God gets angry because it's contrary to his very nature. It is no different, if I can just step aside for a second, when you believe something is wrong and someone has wronged you, that you get angry. When you see some injustice from your vantage point, do you not get upset at some point? I know I do. I've seen others get upset. I've seen, in fact, I'm looking at faces, and I've seen when some of you have become angry. But it's usually because someone has done something against someone else or possibly against you that you believe is wrong, and thus the anger that happens. So we see God's righteous wrath in this case and how it was applied. But there is a difference. And so, in the scriptures, is a phrase called the anger of man. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, what is this anger of man? Because it's regarded as a work of the flesh. When we read the scriptures, we see that to be the case. In James chapter 1, in verse 20, that's exactly what the passage says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, what is this anger of man? Well, as we've already read in Matthew 5, verse 22, when you have an anger that is without cause, and and I would even add in parentheses, without just cause, without righteous cause, that's sin. That's the anger of man. But we get angry about all kinds of things that we think are right and wrong. I mean, if I can just take a moment... Because of current events in our country with with the recent election, there's hundreds of thousands that have been marching, right, this this weekend, yesterday. And many are marching because they feel that there is injustice. Maybe one of them is that women are not paid like men for doing the same exact work. And, And they feel slighted. And they want their voices heard after decades of inequality. And so they march. The next woman marches because she feels that her right to exercise the choice over her own body, and I'm speaking of abortion, is taken away if I don't have that choice to abort a child. And so they feel that that right has been taken away, and so they want to march. The next person says, how could you dare kill a child cause an abortion, and they feel like that child, that unborn child, has no rights, and it's being taken away, and guess what? They want to march against those marchers, and then you get both sides of an issue, and they're both upset, and so we're wanting to know, you know, this concept of right and wrong, and one is saying, yeah, but I believe our human rights as women have not been kept, and the other side is saying, yeah, but you're doing this as well. And so there's, there's, there's confusion over time. And hopefully this sermon helps to delineate. And I'm going to use this example later on as I, as I conclude uh, with a modern illustration of trying to delineate sinful anger from righteous anger. All right. So we, we've got this confusion, but the sinful anger in, in a nutshell, if I can make it very clear and simple. And again, things don't get so simple once you apply it. Um, is this concept that you you have anger without just cause, and the just cause is truth, based upon truth, and that truth is reflecting the very character of God. That's where this is coming from. This concept of sinful anger in contrast to righteous anger. So, with that in mind, then, how do we apply this concept of righteous anger? Well, let's look at how it was done in the scriptures, because there's a number of examples and. And there's more than, than what could be listed here, but just look at a few of them. So remember, um, at one point, you know, Jacob loves, loves Rachel more than Leah, but Leah's, uh, well, Leah's given to him as wife, number one. And God basically opens her womb, and she's like, well, I hope then my husband's gonna love me. And pretty soon, she stops giving birth after children, and then her handmaid is given, and she has children. Well, then Rachel is like, oh, here, take my handmaid, because I'm not able to have children. And so all of a sudden, you got this battle going on. And finally, Rachel, the one he loves, says, why aren't you giving me a son? And he says, like, and he burns angry. If you read the passage in Exodus 30, verse 2, am I in the place of God? That I can do this? And he's upset with his wife. And he's got a reason. He can't. He's not God that he can just say, okay, you're going to have a son. Gets upset. Moses, as I was mentioning in Exodus 32 when God was angry with the Israelites, in verses 19 and 20, he gets so upset, he throws down the tablets. He takes... All the the jewelry that had been been made into a golden calf, he burns that, turns it into ashes, puts that in the water, and makes the Israelites drink this water. Tell me today if that's not going to be a lawsuit. But that's what he does. He gets angry with the people of God because they were idolatrous, going against the very first commandment that they agreed to God with that we will worship only you, Jehovah. Go on further. There was immoral practices in the temple. John chapter 2, we, that was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We could read later on in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and uh, I believe in Luke, where there is the, the, the temple and all the activity with regard to the Passover meal, where they would bring um, their monies to exchange for animals that would be used for the sacrifices for the Passover And he sees them actually being fraudulent against one another. You got people that would take the the scales and make the scales in such a manner as I can get more for my money, right? So he sees these immoral activities, and he overturns the tables, and he overturns the chairs. He's very angry. Again, if someone else were to do it today, we might think, ah, he just lost it. But that's what Jesus did. And we are told that Jesus was without sin. That's what we learn. The scripture says it very explicitly in Hebrews chapter 12. He was tempted in every which way that we are, yet without sin. Here's what he did without sin. While he was angry. Saul against the Ammonites. Saul takes a yoke of oxen, cuts it into all kinds of pieces, sends it all throughout the land of Israel, and he says, if if any one of you does not follow me into battle against the Ammonites, I'm going to do to your oxen what I did to this or these. And so they all rise up and they go and fight with Saul against the Ammonites that was going against Jabesh Gilead. Peter, in Acts chapter 5, you have all kinds of Christians that are laying down at the feet of the apostles of their own accord, monies, from various ways, selling property, whatever it was, because the church was was one, had all things in common. But Ananias and Sapphira, they decide to hold back that which they had obligated themselves of their own choice to the Lord. And he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. His anger was aroused against them. Or Paul and Barnabas, in a case in which both sides are thinking they're doing what is right, you remember, they wanted to bring John Mark on their second trip, on their second quote-unquote missionary journey, and decide they're going to bring John Mark, in. and Paul's like, uh-uh. He abandoned us. We are not taking him. The contention was so great that Barnabas went on and took John Mark and went with him, and Paul takes Silas. And the church blesses their efforts to take Silas and go off in a whole different direction. Both were angry with each other. There's no sin as far as we are knowing. There's no the church saying, hey, you guys need to first make up. And then there was a situation with the anger was against and they went their separate ways for a while. They, they definitely did make up, by the way. We can read that in Scripture. Paul at one time, has to go face-to-face with Peter and confronts him because of his hypocrisy because he stopped eating, having fellowship with Gentile Christians when Jewish brethren came nearby. This is like, I'll be with Ted. Ted, you and I, we're good with each other until I see David coming around. Then I'm going to have to stop being around you. That hypocrisy caused Paul to be so upset, he stood against him. It does not say literally he was angry, but that's exactly what happened. He was angry. And so there's a number of biblical examples that we see what what I would show in Scripture based upon the fact that, that you're looking at truth and you're abiding in truth and someone is doing something that is contrary to truth, contrary to love, contrary to righteousness, and it brings out this emotion called anger it's not an anger that is a selfish anger one without just cause is one and of course the question is well aren't we always thinking that we've been wronged in some way and the answer is yeah we always think that when i'm angry it's because it's always a just cause it that's how we justify our own actions until we're confronted with our own sins. I mean, we could talk about David when he was so upset about that man who took the other man's sheep and realizes, oh, you're talking about me. I'm guilty of sin. There's a number of times when we we start learning to delineate um, based upon how things are perceived. So when we look at these scriptures and we see that righteous anger is displayed... And, and again, we might look at the script, the same exact passage of Scripture and look at it somewhat differently in, in various cases. But particularly some of the ones that I use, like when you use God and you use Jesus, how do you question, right? There's no question whatsoever about their action because they are without sin. So how do we do it today? So here's where my opinion comes in first and foremost. I've said this before. I'm going to say it one more time. We are a soft society we are thin-skinned, we are so sensitive that we cannot talk to each other without getting so upset. Like, as if you say something that I don't wanna hear, that means we're not gonna be friends from now on. I get weary about that, by the way. There's nothing wrong that, that you're passionate about things that you feel are unjust for whatever reason that you feel that way, and that we go through, we go through friction. Those are are moments. Now, mind you, keep in mind there are passages like using your tongue as season, right? As salt. Speaking gracious words. But there are moments that things are vitally important where there is wrong taking place. I mean, clear cut, hands down, no question, not an opinion. This is sin involved. You get angry. I'll give you an illustration, and then we'll get back to this concept of a soft society that we live in, being politically correct and so on and so forth. So about, close to about 25 years ago, there's a church here in the south. I preached at a number of occasions. They are engaged, from what I know, because of, because of the facts I, I was able to uh, get, in discrimination against a brother in Christ because of his dark skin. I'm in my early mid-20s, and I was a lot hotter than I am now (laughs) as a person, angry, more easily angered. but I was very angry, and I knew the time was going to come that they would ask me to come preach again, and I was at a crossroads whether or not I would say no, and I would let them know why, or I would say yes, and I was going to lay the boom, knowing that that probably would be the last time I'm preaching there and deal with racism deal with the subject of discrimination. That's because I know it's sinful. When you can look at someone and that person is less than someone else because of the color of their skin. Oh, that'll get me upset real easy. But when we look at today where we cannot even say words, we cannot call a spade a spade, so to speak. Call it like we see it because, you know, we have to use just these words. Well, words are changing so quickly today. They're evolving so quickly. This morning I used a, a word that was older and in Bible class, I, and I see the contrast in older and younger, and looking at the same exact word, I'm going, okay, I get it. <laughs> so I get the changing of our words, our vernacular, is changing very, very rapidly, and some words that that. I hear some of my older brothers and sisters in Christ in this congregation use, our younger, younger brethren would, would not use those words because they elicit certain thoughts or reactions. And vice versa by the way. So I get it. We live in this, but that's my, my take, that we live in this uh, kinder, more progressive politically correct environment. And I use all of these in quotations from a standpoint that, well, we're not any kinder. I mean, I Look at the signs. There's a lot of signs on both sides of the aisle with regard to political issues and other issues where we spew forth non-politically correct garbage at each other. And I've seen it. On both sides. Conservative and liberal in our country. So any speech or action then, because of our mindset, right? Like... Today, you have to, Johnny, you did wrong. Now, now. Go to timeout. But I'm not going to raise my voice at all because I am self controlled. I am a Christian. You laugh, you're giggling right now, but that's what we do, right? And if you see anyone, they get so upset and they have fire coming out of their nostrils, oh, that person's lost it. He needs therapy. We do it. We do it. We think that, oh, you know, you cannot display anything but this calm. And then you look, well, then I think if, if we did not call him Jesus, Jesus would be lacking self-control. In today's culture, in this country, we would look at something what Jesus had done and going, sinner, he did wrong. But it's because of the way our society views things today. And so again, it blurs the whole picture of what is righteous anger and what is sinful anger when we do that. And so it is in this light that it seems as if Christians can only say they're angry without saying angry words or doing angry things. Because otherwise you've lost self-control. So that gets me to the question that, was, that we started with. Can Christians display Righteous anger. The answer is yes. Now, I tread very lightly on my yes because of the way we blur the lines. When I say yes, I'm not saying that that you can re- disregard laws that are, have been set up in our country, like. You know, if, if it was unlawful for Jesus to th- overthrow money changers table, I'd say, Don't do that. You're gonna break the law. Because there's there's a law in place that you cannot um, defame or you cannot destroy property, right? Those are laws that we have in this country. Now, that does not mean that people won't get angry and do such things and may say, you know what? I did it and I'll I'll pay the fine I'll pay the fine, I'll I'll spend the night in jail, whatever the the penalty of the law may be. But know that we have laws in place today. There's other places that may not have those laws, and you may do that, and nothing will happen to you. But there are laws. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 is very explicit about, and, and Romans 13 more, the government. But we we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2 with regard to the law that is given. I think this is a very important passage for us to always keep in mind because we are children of God who live in a land of which we may be earthly citizens of. And we are, excuse me, earthly citizens of. So he says in this passage, uh, let's see. Oh, I'm in Second Peter, sorry about that. He says, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. For the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So, you know, someone's property, you don't have the right to destroy it. I saw people in the name of of doing what they thought was right in their mind and protesting destroying Starbucks yesterday in New York City. I think it was or Washington, I forget where. Destroying it. People taking the newsstands and throwing it out to the streets. And some would say, well, Jesus overturned money changers' tables, so what they're doing is okay. And then we get into the convoluted, well, this person is marching for this reason. That person is not marching for that reason that that person is, like abortion. I'm marching because of this. Well, women's rights, let's say. So how do you deal with questions like that where if things start getting muddled up? Because sometimes there's not a law from God himself that says, thou shalt get angry when you have in a human rights injustice. And again, determining what that injustice is is very clear. Um, well, very difficult, I should say, at times. For instance, if, if women are getting paid less than men, well, what about men getting paid less than men? Right? preaching here. When, if the next person comes in and preaches, do they get the same amount, more or less? Is that fair? Oh, if you, now if you're year one preaching, you get this much. If you're year 20, year 30, at what point we start becoming socialistic by force, saying it has to be this way? Right? Well, keep that in mind. The parable of the vine dress no the parable in the vineyard remember in the 11th hour remember jesus went out into the marketplace and their people did not have a job and he says okay you work for me i'll give you a denarius for today so some came out in the very break of dawn and they worked all day long then he goes out a few hours later gets this group he agrees a denarius a day okay go ahead next one again all the way till the very last hour sun is ready to set there's an hour left And he decides, hey, you work for me, and you'll get your wage. And then Jesus decides, on purpose, to dispense the wages of the day, and those who worked for one hour got an entire day's wage. And you know what happened with everyone else? They were so, oh, what a gracious man. You're so nice to give. They only worked one hour, but, man, you were so nice to them. That's not what happened. In the affairs of man, we have humanistic reason and we're saying that is not fair. We are going to march at Jerusalem and demand that we get paid 12 times more because I worked 12 hours and they only worked one. That's fair. That's not what happened. Jesus said, are you angry because I do that which is good? You know, I chose to give this man this much. Didn't you and I agree to a denarius? We agreed to it, and then now you get upset because I gave this person the same denarius, for less work. Do you despise me because I did that, which is good? There is a principle involved that we can see in Scripture that hopefully we can see applicable in our daily walk. There are times in which it can simply be an owner of a company that says, hey, John's an owner of a company. I decide I want to give you $100,000 a year for taking out the trash. It's John's money. As the owner of the company, can he do it? Yes. Can he decide that, that someone who has a very, very important job, not just taking out trash, which is here, important enough that he's paying someone to do it, and he gives him $20,000, and he's, this is the person who's running the whole company. If John wants to, can he choose to do it? Yes, because the other guy on the other end says, you know what? I need the $20,000. I'm going to agree to this, this um, job, and we're going to put it down in writing, agree to it. I can't come along later on saying, hey, I'm doing all this work. This guy's just emptying the trash. You don't even have to think. There's no risk on his end. It's John's money. What I'm saying is there's a lot of times in our humanistic reasoning that we get so convoluted because we stay away from this very word of God that can give us insight and give us wisdom. And we come up with our own litmus of right and wrong. And we apply that litmus to the very word of God over what we're going to cry about, whine about, or protest about. Brethren, there are a lot of times when what we think is righteous anger is nothing more than the flesh. But it's disguised. And we justify, we self-justify our anger. We need to be careful what is righteous anger. And sometimes we think we know more than we really do. And all of us, every one of us, including myself, we don't have all the answers. And so we have to be careful not to be angry because if we anger, be sure that if you are angry, you do not sin. You do not sin, I should say. But there are moments that you're going to stand for the cause of Christ. And you may stand like some of the Jews known as the Maccabees that saw fellow Jews who were... Leaving Jehovah and practicing idolatry or practicing unrighteous practices, and they were so angry. They'd fight their own brethren. There are moments in which we see situations like Moses forcing the people of God to remember their wickedness, and they show that anger. There may be times in the pulpit because of something that would happen here that is not being dealt with, and it's not taken care of one and one, even though it's been practiced, everything is being done, that you have one of the elders, or one of the men of the congregation. Who knows if a woman would dare stand up before the men of the congregation because there is sin and nothing is done about it. It may get that bad. But that's righteous anger when there is sin Something contrary to God, and things aren't done about it, that someone finally gets to that boiling point and spew forth wrath. There's a time and place for righteous anger. But remember the song we sang at the very beginning that Ted let us in angry words will oh, let them never? It's because most of the times the flesh takes hold of us with anger. And instead of the sun going down, and then we regroup and think through, hey, you know what, I'm going to handle this situation much better than simply just showing my anger. Especially when it's with your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Who, you should believe, loves God and wants to do his will. But when it's this, I mean, no, case closed, there's sin involved, complete sin. Not my opinion of what I think they're doing is wrong. You need to think very clearly about your anger. And when we're trying to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, let it be known. The world is just that the world. They're going to do worldly things in worldly ways, even if they are saying it in a manner that says, I'm trying to promote what is right and what is true. And know that you want to reach the gospel with them. Do with the love that God intends for them to receive. Their soul is, is very precious. So use wisdom, use love, and use truth to determine the kind of anger that you display and when you display it and how you display it. Now again, by giving this sermon that doesn't answer all the questions that you might have, that's not the intention because it gets very gray. But apply these scriptures to the best of your ability so that you may serve the Lord, shine as a light, and let his grace fall upon each of us if we were to sin. So keep that in mind, brethren. Here's what is no doubt. If you're not a Christian, God does love you. But God's love does not preclude him from judging you if you stay in a manner that is contrary to his holiness. And he's given you the way of escape. Because he loves you, he's giving you the way of escape. And that escape is through his son, Jesus Christ, through his blood. And if you call upon his name, he will deliver you like he did the Israelites with a mighty and powerful hand. And his wrath that would burn hot against you in eternity will turn to peace and joy and fellowship if you come near to him. Now, if you want that salvation, he will deliver you if you call upon his name. You can do that by being washed in the blood of his son this morning or returning to him. Why not do that? Right now, it's together we stand and sing.